and we will be looking here at the first 11 verses as we begin this morning, and we'll move around to a couple of other passages just briefly this morning as we uh, make our way through. Um, and so, but Romans chapter number 5. I'm going to look this morning at the work of atonement. It's not something that we, it's something that we appreciate, something that we, we think that we know and understand, and I'm sure that we have a good understanding of it. Uh, but it's not something that we necessarily would dedicate a whole message to all that often. I think sometimes we're guilty, I'm guilty of just taking for granted that, uh, that we get it. And whether we get it or not is just part of the point. Part of the point is when I really get something of this magnitude, then it does impact how I live my life and, and my values and how I uh, go about my, my daily routines. And so I hope that as we listen this morning, the Lord will work in our hearts to that end. But Romans chapter 5, and we'll begin here in verse number 1. Therefore, being justified by faith, <clears throat> we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace, wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, Knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. And again, this morning, I want to speak on this thought, the work of atonement. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for this time. Thank you for your atoning work on Calvary's cross. Lord, may we learn to understand and appreciate the, the sacrifice that you made. May we, uh, Lord, not merely accept it and then waste it, but may we live lives in which you can be honored and glorified because we understand the sacrifice that you made. May we be willing to make a sacrifice of our lives back to you as a gesture of our love as well. Lord, help us this morning. And Lord, I pray that you'd speak to our hearts now in Jesus' name. Amen. When you look here, he begins with the word therefore. And you look back into chapter 4 and Paul uses Abraham pretty extensively throughout the fourth chapter of Romans to make the case that salvation is not by works, it's not by the law, uh, it's not by what we've done. And, that, and really the case that he's making is that this is not new. This is not something that is unusual or should be hard for the minds of his readers to understand. He's saying it's always been this way. Abraham was not justified by his works. Abraham was justified by faith. And so the, they're, they're living in a time where so much emphasis is on the works of the law. Uh, but from the beginning, before the law, man was reconciled to God, was redeemed to God by placing their faith and trust in him. 
And so we believe in their time, they place their faith and trust looking forward to the cross and God's finished work, Christ's finished work there, whereas we look back to the cross. Uh, and so, but his faith was in God and righteousness was imputed to Abraham because of his faith, not because of his works. Now, obviously, his faith produced a lot of works, but the works were a production of the faith and not uh, the other way around. So, therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't it a wonderful thing to have peace with God? To not have to live looking over our shoulder uh, wondering if I died right now, how would I end up? Not having to get in a car every time you get on the highway and wondering if I don't make it to my destination, what's going to be my eternal state? Uh, and so we can live in peace knowing that we have salvation as a gift from God through Jesus Christ that he, by in his grace, has sacrificed himself and made available to us salvation. And if we will exercise our faith, then he gives us this wonderful gift. By whom we also ha we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand. Not only did he give us salvation, but uh, he gave us stability in life. Access by faith in his grace, we have the ability to stand. We have the ability to stand strong in the faith, strong in the word of God, uh, to not live under the control of our sin or our old nature, but to live a victorious life uh, governed and led by the Holy Spirit of God. And so by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of glory. And so we talk about Jesus Christ being the hope of glory and then he elaborates on that and not only so, but we glory in tribulations. Now he's not saying I'm excited that I'm suffering. He's saying that the result of my tribulation is knowing uh, that tribulation works patience. So that in my suffering, God is working in me. And as God is working in me, uh, then I gain that patience. That patience gives me experience and experience strengthens, builds, and fosters my hope in Christ. Now put it this way. I can intellectually say, I believe that Jesus will keep his word to me, or I can, by a, a long life of experience in him, rest and have hope that he will do because he has already been doing. We all have people in our lives that we would look at and say, you know, if the chips are down, that's the last person I'm going to call because they never come through. Then we undoubtedly have some people in our lives that sometimes they come through and sometimes they don't. And if we're very fortunate, we have someone in our life, humanly speaking, that we know that no matter where we are, no matter what we're going through, that if we call them, whatever it takes, they're going to get there. We just believe that. We don't worry about it. There are people that you call and you don't wonder whether or not they're going to be too busy or, or whether they're not going to be able to do something about it. You just know that they're going to be there. That's essentially what he's talking about here. I know who not to call when there's an emergency. And I, as a pastor within our church, I know if there's certain things, if there's certain emergencies, okay, I want to call this person and not this one. Something else comes up and it may be a different call list depending on what the circumstance is. And then there are some people that I, if I needed help with something church-wise, I wouldn't call them no matter what because I don't want to waste my time. I know they're not going to come through. And then there are other people that I could call and even if they don't know what to do, they're going to figure it out because they just 
want to make a difference. And I know that I, no matter what, I can count on them to rise to the occasion, to sort something out, to enlist more help, to do what's necessary. How do I know that? Because after nearly nine years of being the pastor here, I understand and know uh, who comes and who doesn't, who helps and who doesn't help, who's willing and who's not, who's able and who's not. All of those things factor in. And after nine years of experience, I've learned when this comes up, that's my guy. I can put my faith in that, my confidence in that, my hope in that. Why? Because they've proven over and over and over again that whenever there's a need, they rise to the occasion. That's essentially what Paul's arguing or making the case that he's making here about the Lord Jesus Christ. Did I put my faith in him based upon what I've read and experienced on a limited basis through the word and in life? Yes, but if I've been saved for a considerable period of time and I have suffered and I have experienced and I have seen him come through for me time and time again, then I have great hope. I really don't even worry whether or not God's going to show up or come through because there's never been a time when he hasn't. That hope is built. That hope is building. And so he's laying out here, and patience, experience, and experience hope, and hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. We had no strength, no ability to save ourselves, to reconcile ourselves to God. We had no method or, uh, or, or way to fix what was broken in our life. And then he says, for scarcely uh, for a righteous man would one die. In other words, it's a rare thing that someone would look at someone that is very upstanding and very powerful and very uh, important to society or to your life, and you would give their, your life for theirs. That's a rare thing. For scarcely would one give his life for a righteous man. And then he continues to say, yet peradventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God commendeth or demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's a rare thing to die for a noble person, for a good person, for an important person. It's a rare thing. How, but, but God didn't look at us and sort out the, the, the good from the bad, the powerful from the weak, the noble from, uh, from the, the less so, the, uh, the, the, the righteous from uh, the wicked. He didn't, he didn't sort us out at all. Jesus just looked at humanity and said, you are my creation and I love you and you've been separated from God by your sin. And there's only one way to fix this, and that is for me to love you. And my love demonstration to you requires that I bear your sin on my body, go to Calvary's cross, experience the wrath of God, shed my blood, and then rise over the grave in hell victorious. I'm glad this morning that God didn't wait until I cleaned up my act, turned over a new leaf, uh, learned new habits before he decided he would make his love available to me. While I was yet a sinner in my vilest condition, 
So, Pastor, how vile really was your condition? As far as Jesus is concerned, it's as vile as vile gets. It's not a matter of comparing my life to someone else's or someone else's to mine or our lives to uh, people in history gone by or uh, what could come about in the future. It's about where do I stand in Christ. He demonstrated his love toward us. And being much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. That wrath that was rightfully ours. Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, we continue on, says, Wherefore is by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. We have all sinned because Adam's sinful nature was passed to us. And because of that, we sinned. And as a result of that, Christ made a sacrifice. In verse 18 of Romans 5, Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered... But that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. And we see this morning as in this work of atonement, the Lord Jesus Christ has demonstrated his great love to us. Not when we were good, but we were at our worst. He loved us. He made the sacrifice. He paid the price. Does my life this morning reflect an appreciation for the price that was paid on Calvary's cross? The will of American financier J.P. Morgan, <coughs> just a year before his death, when he went and restructured and ordered his will, it ended up being a will that was 10,000 words in length with 37 separate articles. He was a man of great influence, a man of great power, a man of great wealth. We simply know the legacy of the business aspect of that with J.P. Morgan Chase banks and other companies and things like that that are affiliated with his name. But in his life, though he had a knack for business and making money, there was no doubt what Mr. Morgan considered to be the most important thing in his will and in his life. And what he considered to be the most important clause in this massive will. Quoting from his will, this clause states this. I commit my soul in the hands of my Savior, full of confidence that having redeemed me and washed with his most precious blood, he will present me faultless before the throne of my heavenly Father. I entreat my children to maintain and defend at all hazard and at any cost of personal sacrifice the blessed doctrine of complete atonement of sins through the blood of Jesus Christ once offered and through that alone. When you look and understand the importance of the work of atonement in our life, it describes for us the work that was necessary to Make us clean and saved from our sin. Leviticus chapter 17 and verse number 11 is Moses is writing and setting in order the tabernacle at God's behest. And 
uh, and laying out the structure of the sacrificial system and giving them the dietary laws and all of the different things that the law would cause them to have to abide by. Uh, he lays out there uh, that uh, that you can, this is the things you can eat and this is what you can't eat. And one of the primary things that you could not eat was the blood. And in Leviticus chapter 10, he makes that restriction. And then in verse 11, he explains why. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. There are a lot of places that you go, a lot of places that have church on the name that will not sing any longer songs about the blood. Without the blood, there is no remission of sin. Without the blood, my soul cannot be saved. Without the blood, I have no eternal life. It is the blood that contains the life of this flesh and it is the blood of Jesus that gives life to my spirit. We look and we understand this word atonement. It is a verb meaning to cover over. So the Old Testament meaning of this word and you see it used frequently in the Old Testament in one form or another means to cover over or to uh, propitiate, to pacify. They celebrated on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. The high priest would go into the tabernacle and, and bypass the, 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 the regular altar that was there and, uh, and then wash at the laver as he entered into the holy place. And when he went into the holy place and made his way past the table of showbread to the right and the, uh, and the lampstand to the left and uh, came to the curtain and the altar of incense that separated the holy place from the holy of holies which contained the Ark of the Covenant, uh, he, would, uh, he would offer once a year sacrifice first to make atonement for his own sin and then to make atonement for the nation. He would step behind that curtain, look at the altar, the, the Ark of the Covenant and sprinkle that blood and sacrifice which God would accept on the mercy seat, the lid of the Ark with the cherubim with their wings set back, known as the mercy seat. And as he made that sacrifice for another year, the sins of the nation were covered and it was a temporary pacification of God's wrath upon the sin of the people until the Lord Jesus Christ made a final atonement at Calvary's cross. When you look at the word and you break it down into syllables, it means at one And so just hyphenate it out, at one What it's saying is that atonement makes me at one again with God. When God created man, they were one, created in the image of God, walking in fellowship with God in the garden. Sin separated, sin divided, sin made us the enemy of God. But atonement brings us back into fellowship with God and makes us one again with Him. We speak about Atonement, we're talking about the process of bringing those who are enemies into harmony and unity again with the Father. That is the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Interestingly enough, the word atonement happens, uh, occurs many times in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, you only find it once. The central tenet of our faith, that which cannot, which we have no salvation without, only in Romans chapter 5 and verse 11 is the word atone, atoned, or atonement used. I was a little bit surprised when I was studying and researching that, that that was the case. And I did my best to find it somewhere else located in the New Testament and it's nowhere to be found. Yet it is of utmost importance. We have now received the atonement. And something that's so vital, something that's so crucial to us, may we understand and see first of all this morning that there was a plan for our atonement. That God did not create us understanding and knowing that we would sin and, and predetermine that we would just be wiped away and cast aside for all of eternity. He deemed us valuable enough to make the sacrifice of our redemption and to make the work of our atonement uh, worth the sacrifice. That's how valuable we are as a race of people to God. Worthy of that sacrifice. A willingness to take and sacrifice his own son, Jesus, on the cross for the most reprehensible of all humanity. A plan for atonement. That plan, though as extensive this morning, we'll look at just a couple of the primary aspects that made him a worthy lamb. Number one, we see that in that plan of atonement that he was the God-man. He, as God, understands God. He, as God, is able to understand what price has to be paid and what has to be resolved. And so Jesus, as part of this plan, is conceived miraculously by a young virgin girl as a sign of God's moving. And the only person in all of humanity born without a sinful nature. Adam was created and chose to sin. The only other person ever brought in such a state is the Lord Jesus Christ. No sin nature outside of the garden. We all have it, but Jesus doesn't. He has a human mother. He is 100% man. But he has a heavenly father only. 100% God. The God-man is able to do what no other man can do. The Bible tells us in John's account that in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shined in the darkness and the darkness comprehended it not. He was in the world in verse 10 and the world was made by him and the world knew him not. In verse 11 he came into his own and his own received him not. But as many as received him to them gave he the power to become the sons of God. Even to them that believe on his name. Verse 14, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. 
And we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And what I'm saying this morning is that Jesus is the one central, unique person and God in all of eternity that was able to reconcile sinful man to a holy God. It took all of His humanity and it took all of His godness to bring us together. There was a plan. The plan that was devised that brought a perfect sacrifice. An unpolluted sacrifice. A lamb without spot and without blemish. Whose blood was powerful and pure. We see secondly that because Jesus is God, is God and man. That he can act on behalf of both parties. It's interesting that John in his, first, in his first epistle laid out in chapter 2, My little children, these things write unto you that you sin not, but if any man sin, uh, we have an advocate with the, with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation or the substitute uh, for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. He stands as our advocate. He stands as our defense attorney. He stands between the throne of heaven and the eternity of hell, and he shows those nail scarred hands and he says I understand judge father God of eternity that you are holy and that you are righteous and that you are powerful and you cannot compromise but I also understand that man is weak and that man is frail and that man is born in a sinful state and I stand between you and I stand before you and I offer as God my sacrifice and I offer Offer as man my withstanding of temptation, the ability to show the sacrifice that I've made and to offer the blood that I've shed to reconcile this wicked, sinful man to you, holy, powerful God, and to God in heaven on his throne. It is an acceptable atonement, an acceptable sacrifice. There was a plan. Jesus, an advocate, in place to reconcile man and God. We see secondly this morning from verse 6, For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly in due time, indicating that plan. But then in verse 8, the price of that atonement. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. For the ungodly. The price of atonement was the price of blood. Why the price of blood, Pastor? Because that's where the life is. It's interesting. You get all caught up in all of the, uh, all of the science of this and the science of that. If the scientists and the medical people of the 1700s would have simply read Leviticus chapter 17 and verse 11, they would have understood uh, that whenever people were ill, that draining their blood wasn't going to help them. was a common medical practice. It was used extensively. Our first president died in the room in, the, in his bedroom, laying in the bed on the second floor of his home at Mount Vernon on the side of the Potomac River after he contracted pneumonia after checking on his things in the cool of winter. And the doctors thought his blood's infected. We have to get it out. 
And they literally bled him to death. That was a very common practice in those days. But if they would have just read Leviticus 17, they would have understood that that was the life. And what I'm saying this morning is that the price of atonement is the price of blood. That it would not do. No other sacrifice was available. No other sacrifice could make atonement for sin. It was blood that was necessary. And the blood showed and demonstrated that that was a valuable price. Without blood, there's no life. And without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. Life, blood is valuable. And it's acceptable. We see in the price of that blood that it has value that is held in such high regard that God in all of his glory could look and say it's valuable enough to pay for the sin debt of humanity. And he said it's precious enough that I can accept it. There's nothing else that was acceptable. There's nothing else that would have satisfied there's nothing else that could have brought us before God, the price of that blood. Then we see, secondly, that Jesus fulfilled the law of God and attained righteousness. He overcame temptation. He was obedient to the will of God, even unto death. He was willing to pay that price and do what was necessary. And he didn't have to do it over and over again. The animal sacrifices had to be repeated every year. Lesser sacrifices had to be made for lesser offenses all throughout the year along the way. There were much blood shed over the centuries to signify and symbolize what Jesus would do on Calvary's cross. Romans or Hebrews rather chapter 9 and verse 22 tells us in almost all things are by the law purged with blood and without the shedding of blood there is no remission. In verse 24 it says for Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands which are the figures of the true but into heaven itself. Listen, he's a high priest that he doesn't have to go to the symbol of God at an ark of a covenant in the holy place and the holy of holies of the temple or the tabernacle, he's come straight to the presence of the throne of God, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entered into the holy place every year with blood of others. For then must he have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. And unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. In chapter 10, in verse uh, 10 it says, By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. One time. One sacrifice, a high price, a valuable, acceptable sacrifice that did not cover my sin, it eradicated my sin. My bill, my sin debt to God, it's not that it's been forgiven. It's not that it's been forgotten. It's not that it's been written off. It's that it's been paid in full. Amen. Now I understand 
that God cast our sin as far as the east and the west and doesn't reflect on them. He buried them as deep as the deepest sea. But when it comes to the idea of atonement, the debt has not been suspended, belayed, hidden, or forgotten. It has been paid in full. That's how precious, that's how powerful the blood of Christ, the price of atonement, that high price that only God could pay. Thirdly, we see the performance of that atonement. What is it to accomplish? And I'm telling you this morning, it is to accomplish more than just salvation in mankind. Notice in verses 9 and 10, he says, Much more than being now justified by his blood. Because now I am justified standing before God just as if I had never offended him or sinned against him. We shall be saved from wrath through him, through Jesus. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled we shall be saved by his life. Now we've already been saved from wrath. Now we're being saved from our sinful nature. He did not simply merely say, I, I'll pay for your sin and bring you to heaven. Good luck until you get here. He said, I'm giving you the Holy Spirit of God and he is, he is living within you and the salvation that I give, the atonement that I offer, the sacrifice that I've made has paid your debt to God, but it's also set you free from the power of sin in the flesh. The performance of atonement. He bore the righteous judgment of sin once for many. And our sin was not condoned but judged. God in no, we live in a time where if our excuse is good enough, then we think that we've been absolved of any responsibility. For generations we've been teaching uh, children uh, that as long as you've got an excuse, it's okay. But when it comes to sin and when we stand before God, it's not okay. God had to be satisfied. Righteousness had to be cared for. And he had to bear it in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verses 18 through 21 tell us this for as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation or lifestyle received by tradition from your fathers but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world but was manifest in these last times for you who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory that your faith and hope might be in God. We rest in our faith and hope, rest not in the church or in a man uh, or in, uh, in the people that have invested in us or in a bank account or in a home or in a job uh, or in what the government's promised and uh, whenever we reach retirement age, our faith and our hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. For him to perform in us that work that he's begun. To realize this Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10, or, or 10, 11, 12 tell us that we are the workmanship of the Lord Jesus Christ. That it is the power of that atonement, the, the performance rather of that atonement that is working in us. That has not merely saved our soul but has made it possible for us to live victoriously. 
pleasing to God, making a difference for God, and showing the love of Christ to others, and investing in teaching and training them to follow Him for a lifetime. It is the performance of that atoning act of Christ. Then lastly this morning, fourthly, the power of that atonement. In verse 11, he says that not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm telling you tonight or this morning that without Christ, we have no reason to find joy. We can find temporary appeasement. We can find temporary happiness. We can laugh at things that come up. We can forget about our, our problems and distresses. Uh, but in Christ, we have joy. Outside of Christ, I can find some distraction, but in Christ, in the midst of the worst of life, I can find joy in His presence. The power of atonement was the power for Him to rise from the grave. The power for Him to conquer death and hell. To rise with the keys, power over sin and death. The power of atonement was the power that sinners who were judged in Him are then victoriously renewed through Him. When we look at ourselves and we have stood judged, but Jesus stood between us and the judge and paid the price and argued the case and in him, the payment was made and victorious life was given. We were reborn. We were renewed. We were regenerated before the Father. As we look this morning at what Jesus done in the work of atonement, he has taken us who were helpless and who were hopeless. He was taking that which was worthless and that which was disgraced. And he has said, I have a plan for you. And that plan is going to require that I pay a high price. And though you're in a vile condition, I look not at what you are, but what I can make out of your life. And I deem you worthy of my sacrifice. And he paid the price of that atonement. And he performs that atonement in us. There's nothing that we can do outside of placing our faith in him and then yielding ourselves to him to do his work. And there is the power of that atonement. The power to take a vile, reprehensible, corrupt vessel to cleanse it, to purify it, and to use it in a way that brings honor and glory to the one that I once disgraced. To be made at one with God. To be made the friend of one to whom once I was an enemy. To take everything that was wrong and to have it set right not by anything that I've done but by everything that he's done. That, my friends, is atonement. We have the power to live victoriously in Christ, but are we? Because of his atoning work, we have the ability to be different, but are we? I would argue this this morning and hope that as we have been reminded of the price that Jesus paid, that we would come to the realization that this great sacrifice that he made makes our sacrifice, our sacrifice, the sacrifice that he calls for a small price, a reasonable price. To give my life a living sacrifice for him. To let him live vicariously through me. 
to let him continue to mold and shape me into his image, to let him do in and through me what I cannot, to take my will and to lay it aside like Jesus took his own will and laid it aside that the will of the Father might be done. We have that ability this morning if we'll just yield ourselves to him because of his atoning work. But are we? Have we? Will we? Will we say, God, you atoned, you made atonement for me, thank you. I'll take your salvation, but I'll see you when I get there. Or would we say, Father, as I realize my weak state and your great sacrifice, how could I do anything but live for you in return? Why, Pastor? Because he paid the price of blood. He made atonement for you and for me.